Well, welcome. For those that don't know me, I'm John. I'm one of the pastors here at Five Stones. Well, we finished our Second Peter series, and uh, we're into a couple just standalone sermons before we get into the Advent's uh, time. But today, I wanted to bring you a word on worship. So the other day, I was talking to a friend, just catching up a little bit. You know, the, the usual, how's your kids, how's the family, how's the wife, how's work, life is busy, hard to find time for yourself. Well, and then it goes into the place of house church. And for me, it always gets into that place because of my profession. And it <laughs> it's not something that I enjoy, but we get into this topic of talking about church. And I find that this one doesn't always go so well. We start talking about the state of the church and questioning kind of the history of the church, how things are in place because of the theology that we have that is taught and formed by people that's wielding power. And we talk about how colonialism comes from the church and how the doctrine of discovery enslaves. We go on and on and, and so forth. And we then look and we see how today the church is so divided, right? It's divided from just people in terms of your, their, their theology and their belief systems. We don't want to be associated with those Christians or that group of people. We, we, we get either the super religious fundamentalist group or we get the super liberal group. We see pastors falling and failing and falling into sin. So as we started talking about the church, it's hard to not feel completely defeated. When we were talking about that, I found myself in the state of my heart, my anxiety started to, to, to come up and it wells up and at the end of the conversation, it was that feeling of, Lord, just take me home. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to see this. I don't want to feel this anxiety. It's overwhelming. But what I realize is that my anxiety is a form of fear. It's a place where I fear what the outcome of the church is, and I fear how people s perceive and see the church. And as a pastor, I have to say I do love the church. I don't love the current state of the church, but I do love the church. So how do we overcome that? And Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, turn with me, chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. And this is the main scripture that we'll be looking at today. It says this, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So similar to the sentiments that I had of, Lord, take me home. This is different. I want to challenge the heart behind the Lord, take me home. Because that Lord, take me home is a form of escape. I don't want to deal with this. Whereas what Paul is writing here is, Jesus is my worship in death and in life. So let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, that we can come together as a church and we worship you and we, we come to a place of knowing who you are. We come to a place of encountering you uh, as a church family together. So Lord, 
as we dig into your word today, as we look into your scripture, Lord, may your spirit come and take those words and transform the way that we live. Transform and remind us of your goodness and your mercy and your peace. So, Father God, we thank you that we could sit here today knowing that you are a good God and that you have good things in store for your church. So we lift this time into your hands and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you guys get up in the morning, when you wake up, what do we do? Do we dread that morning, wake up, and we need our coffee? Do we need to numb ourselves with that coffee? Or do, do we question, oh, I should have I went to bed earlier <laughs> last night. <laughs> and when we question the, the, the aspect of, oh, I should have went to bed last night, that weight of the things that we have to do that day. The errands we need to run, the, the, the responsibilities we need to, to fulfill, all of those things starts running through our heads, right? And we get overwhelmed and weighed down. Or, are some of you guys morning person, you get up and all perky and ready to go for the day. My daughter's like that. <laughs> she wakes up and she screams and she's like, give me my milk and I'm ready to play. In Psalms 90, the psalmist that wrote this wrote it after a prayer of Moses. And he writes this, he says, satisfy, in the mor satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. How many of us want to wake up in that place of saying, Lord, satisfy me today? You see, what Moses understood here and what the psalmist understood here is that there is a heaviness in life. And what he wrote here is he needed to remind himself of how he needs to set the tone for his day. He understood that how we set our day in the morning, each moment, each day defines the action of our choices in which we are to walk in. So, let's back up and we'll answer this later. But let's start off with the question, what is it that you worship? So in the Old Testament, we see this word used quite a bit, specifically in places where God has done something. It's usually localized to a physical and geographical or an external thing that drives people to the, the word of worship. It happens when something significant happens where an altar is built or a temple is built in which people go to worship and to remember. When we read the Bible, we see the idea of worship in its root word. It means to bow down. It is in reverence and to express admiration and adoration. But fundamentally, it is a physical act of falling down before somebody. In the New Testament, we see the same idea where in the Gospels, when Jesus was on earth, people did just that. They ran to him and they fell down. And then we see it again in the book of Revelation. It talks about heaven, and it's the same thing. The elders fall down, the angels fall down, because there's a physical aspect of the worship of Jesus in which we fall down. And so we see the physical act of worship as an expression of the reverence that we have, but it's compartmentalized to a physical expression of our encounter with Jesus and not materialized as a default setting in how we are to live. 
So Paul writes these verses that we read early in Philippians. He writes this in prison. And I think a lot of letters that are to encourage the church is written in prison. Why? This is just my own exposition. It's not anything profound. But I think it's written in prison first because when you're in prison, you need to know what you're living for. You need to know what you're living for to get through it. And second, I think it's because you have a lot of time to think about what's important to you. Like I said, that's just my own extrapolation. But Paul says that I rejoice in this place, in prison. I rejoice in this place. And he says, it is with my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored or magnified. Okay, in some translation, use that word magnified in my body, whether my, by life or by death. What Paul is saying that is that the one thing that is most important to me is that Christ be the one that people see in my life and in my death. That Jesus is honored or to be worshipped or exalted. That is what I want my life to do. And then he goes on and says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If we look at these two verses, there are two pairs. There's the pairs of life and the pairs of death. And so today I want to take those two pairs and work with these pairs. So... First thing I want to do is I want to take out the idea, the, the pair of life out, and want to focus on the, the pair of death. So if we take the, the, the phrase life or live out, we'll read these verses again like this. It is my eager expectation and hope that now as Christ will be magnified in my body, that in death, for to die is gain. could sound a little bit morbid or a little bit defeat. But let's see what Paul is saying. What he's saying is in death we gain. So what do we gain? Why is dying gain? Why is that when you die that Christ is magnified? Well, if we look in Philippians, in verse 23, it actually continues to say, my desire is to part or to die and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Better than what? Better than anything that we have to in life and what life has to offer because in dying, you lose everything, but what you gain is Christ. He says that my desire is to die, not to escape, not because my life sucks and the church sucks, but because if I die, I get Christ. So what the heart of Paul is is that I desire Christ that much. I desire Christ that in death I gain nothing else but Christ. Because in verse 25, Paul actually says this, to remain in flesh is more necessary on your account. Last week and the week before, we talked about how we're living in the, in the period of salvation, in the time of grace. And we're living in this time and that there is a purpose to this time and its purpose is for God to gather up his people and to, to, for, for the people to come into that place of salvation. To understand that this is the time that you have because when God comes back again, that time is over. That this is the time of salvation. And so Paul understands that and Paul says that for your account, 
I need to remain in the flesh. I need to be here, even though I know that if I die, I gain more than what I have here. Paul understands the fact that I have a job to do here. I have a responsibility that, that I have to do here. I have what God wants to give this world, and that is salvation. That's Jesus Christ. That's for me to preach the gospel to as many people as I can. That's what Paul understood here. What we see through the heart of Paul is that his worship is, and his worth comes from Jesus. That Jesus is worthy of his worship. Who Paul is isn't because of what he has done, but what Christ has done in him. It is not what he has made, but who Christ made him to be. Paul sees that God sees what God has done for him out of his great love. Paul sees the love of God, and he knows that in Jesus' death, he gains Jesus. That in death, he, he gains Jesus. And that in his own death, he becomes with Jesus. So Paul is most satisfied by Jesus and his steadfast love. Paul's posture is like a deer that pants for water, for his soul is after Jesus. You know what the one thing that keeps holding us and holding this in our hearts? You know what the one thing is? The one thing that holds us back from getting to this place of understanding that Jesus is everything that we need is sin. It's the sins that we live in. It's the sins that we keep getting ourselves into. Why do we get into these sins? And the deeper issue roots in unbelief. It's the unbelief that kills faith. Jesus in Mark 5 talks about how he couldn't do things in his hometown because of unbelief. He marveled at, at their unbelief. It's the, the, the unbelief is that we don't believe that the nature of God and his ability to save us we don't believe that God is here to save us from our addictions. We don't believe that he's coming to save us from our cravings, from our idols, from our self-righteousness. You know what self-righteousness also breeds? Religion. Because self-righteousness takes us away from loving others, and it takes us away from compassion. But Paul is satisfied by Christ that even in death, he gains so now let's look at that life pair. So if we reread it and we take death out, it says this, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body by life. For me to live is Christ. So how do we live a life that is exalted in living when we get up in the morning to when we go to bed at night? To live is Christ. In Philippians 3.8, Paul says this, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Notice the word gain again, okay? But it is not to die again, but that I gain now, right? To live is Christ, meaning experiencing Christ is to gain now. 
that we get to experience the glory of God now, that we can be satisfied by God now, and that we have the prize of Jesus now. And that we need to learn how to rejoice in it, to delight in it, and to cherish the presence of God in our lives right now. I've brought this up many times, but we like to go through our, our Instagrams and our TikToks and our Facebooks and, we, and, and the magazines and all these stories tell us what we could gain. One thing that actually catches me off guard, so I, I, I consider myself pretty self-controlled in the sense that when I look at these things, I don't, actually, no, it's not true because when I see, like, the watches and the shoes, I'm just like, no, give it to me. <laughs> but the one place that actually catches me off guard the most, this is a weird thing, okay, is on the plane. Okay, have you guys read through those on-flight magazines? Those on-flight magazines have some articles, but then it has this shopping area. This shopping part of it is the most, it's, it's, it's almost like, let's find the most obscure thing that's out there and put it into this magazine, <laughs> right? It's almost like they, they, you, you can't buy these things anywhere else. You can't find these things anywhere else. Like you're flipping through the magazine and it's like you see this doghouse that's shaped like an igloo that dispenses food and water and you're just like, man, I need that. I don't even have a dog, but I need that. <laughs> and you can't find that anywhere else. You're just like, I, I have to have it. This on-flight magazine is the only place I could buy this. You know what I mean? Where life comes at us in a place where we feel like we need things and we need to gain things and we need to, to capture these things. And all of a sudden, our heart desires these things. And it's like, oh, I need that. I need an igloo shaped doghouse that dispenses food and water for my non-existent dog. But that's the world that we live in. We live in a place where we're bombarded with these things that, that, that we feel like we need. The reality is that right now, the culture that we live in, our values are no longer the same. I was born in the 80s. I lived through the 80s. Loved the 80s and early 90s. Life was very much more slow-paced, right? And then those that are older than me is probably like, well, that's it, faster than what I, I was used to. But with our technology today, we get to this place where we, we, information comes to us and overwhelms us very easily, right? So the younger generation right now, is, I mean, it's not an excuse for you, but at the same time, we have to be on guard on what we, we actually take in, right? A couple of weeks ago, I said, I challenge you guys, just fast one day. Take a break just one day where you're able to just take a break from technology, take a break from your social media, take a break from, from all of that so that you could just calm your spirit and slow your spirit down. But one of the things for us is that we no longer live in a culture where our family values and money values are no longer about what we could do together as a community, that in community that I am satisfied. We're in a place where we're in bondage to the cravings of this world, which leads us to be rich, fat, lazy, and being scared to death in our anxiety until we die. We're told that it is what we are to live for instead of living for eternity. 
What we value is what we could gain from this earth and not what we could gain through Christ. So, what is Paul saying? In these verses, Paul is saying, I need you to come back to that place of worship. He doesn't use those exact words, but he's giving us an alternative lifestyle of living, a lifestyle of worship unto God. You know that worship actually takes away fear. Worship actually takes away anxiety. Worship actually takes away depression. That when we worship God, we remind ourselves of who God is and what he's doing in our lives. And when we are able to see that, we no longer see ourselves in the places that we are in bondage of. In Matthew 13, 14, Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and, unco- and, and then covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he goes and buys that field. Jesus gives this example of where is your treasure hidden? Where's your treasure? What is, what is the thing that you're treasuring? Is it, is it just the, the, the things that that capture your heart in that split second or is it something that is long lasting where you're willing to give up absolutely everything and sell absolutely everything to go back to that place and buy that and invest in that one thing to know that the kingdom of heaven is what actually lasts for eternity are you finding your worth and what you're gaining here on earth in the pleasures of of earth i'm not saying don't don't have pleasures I'm not saying that. God created the world for us to have pleasures in, that we're, we're able to partake in what he has created for us, right? God wants us to take all of those things in. God wants us to enjoy his creation. But when we enjoy his creation and we value the creation more than the creator, that's where our heart goes wrong, right? God wants us to come into a life that worships him. But let me clarify this and do not misunderstand this. God does not need our worship. Okay? God does not need you. God does not need you to serve him either because God didn't come to be served, but to serve. He didn't come to to be served, but he gave his life, what, as a ransom for many. So what does our worship serve? Worship is actually about confession. Worship is confessing something that is true about God, and in it, you grow in that faith. That's what worship is. Worship is your confession of saying, God, you are good to me. And what happens when you say, God, you're good to me? That you know in your faith that God is good. When you say, God, you are my provider, what does that mean to you? That means that you know that in your place of lack that God will give. And he'll fill that place of need. When you say, God, you are my, the banner over my life. What does that mean? It means that, God, my allegiance is to you. And I know that as I wave that banner that people know who I belong to. That God, you are my healer. It's confessing that you know that God will heal you. That's what worship is. 
Worship is a confession to build up your faith. Worship is coming into a lifestyle of reminding yourselves of who Jesus is. When we live a life of worship, we are satisfied with the love of Christ. And so then, therefore, we can rejoice and be glad. Who is worthy of your worship? Who are you running after? Do we come on Sunday to sing songs of praise to God and say that that is my worship? And then to go home and to live every other day in, in pursuing what we could gain? Matthew 15 warns us of what worship in this way is. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me. Worship is not just the outward expression of God. Worship is the expression of who Jesus is to you. Worship is being satisfied in the love of God and that in life we gain and in death we gain even more. This is the church. I started this sermon by saying the church is messy. Yes, the church is messy right now, but God uses the church. In Philippians 1.4, he says that he who began a good work in you, he's speaking of the church, that it was Jesus that began the good work, right? And, that it's, and then he goes on to say that he who started it, Jesus who started it, would, will bring it to completion and he'll finish it that we don't need to worry about the state of the church right now and that what the state of the church right now does not define your relationship to Jesus, okay? That we don't need to sort through all of the negativity that is coming with the church. Yes, there is a lot of negative things. I'm not going to say that everything about the church is good. There is a lot of bad things that, and bad theology has, that has come out of the church. But that does not define what the church actually is. Jesus is the only person that is able to define Jesus. That's why I, I, I said last week, when we look at deconstruction and when we look at reconstruction, we need to look at the person of Jesus. If Jesus is not there in that deconstruction, do not do it. Okay? I think deconstruction is a place where we're able to sort out our doubts in our faith. Right? It's a place where I want you guys to feel safe in. But if you're not doing that with Jesus, it's not a safe place to be. Okay, church? I want to speak especially to a younger generation because this is where I see most of the deconstruction happening. And I want you to feel that, okay, I could go through this journey. Okay? I want you to feel that I can. But I want you to do it in a safe place. And the only safe place for you to do that is if the presence of Jesus is there. If you take Jesus out of that equation, stop deconstructing. Amen? Make sure you know what the church revolves around. It's not just a set of rules and theology and good ways of thinking that's out there. The church is rooted and grounded in the person of Jesus. It says that he who started the good work, who's the he? Jesus. And then he will bring it to what? Completion. So don't worry about those things. But I want you guys to be able to be, have that 
that permission to sort it out. Okay? I want you guys to feel like, oh, I can't because it's a bad word. It's not. It's not a bad word. I mean, if you, if you feel like I'm preaching something wrong here, come talk to me. As much as we struggle with the church, Jesus loves his church. And as a church, it is about our worship. You see, the Bible is a story of worship. It's a story of God creating earth and all that is in it. It's a story of Abraham worshiping and obeying a God that he could not see. It is a story of his wife, Sarah, receiving an incredible promise to be the mother of nation and kings. It is Joseph standing before his brothers and proclaiming what you meant for evil, God meant for good. It is of Joshua entering the tent of Moses, of the courage of Deborah who followed the Lord into battle and worshipped him for victory. And it is the glory of God filling the temple when the young King Solomon dedicated the temple of the Lord. The Bible and worship is about a story of dry bones coming back to life and the faithfulness of Daniel to worship openly. It is also a stunning story of a teenage girl named Mary bearing the shame and the disgrace of her community so that the Savior of all humanity might be born. It is a story of Jesus feeding 5,000 on the hills of Galilee, men and women clamoring to know more about this man named Jesus and the mystery of God. Worship is a story of how God provided a way for us to have open communication with the sovereign Lord of the universe by ushering in a new covenant. This is worship. This is us. This is the church. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for these words that Paul has written to us. We thank you for you giving us an altar of worship. And Lord, we just pray that as we look at the way that we live, that we remind ourselves of what you did on the cross and that as Jesus died on that cross, that all of our sins were taken, that you remind us that you have redeemed us from ourselves, that you've saved us from ourselves so that we can be reconciled to you. And Lord, that as we are reminded of these things, that we come to the place of knowing that you are worthy of our worship, you are worthy of our song, you are worthy of our praise, and that we worship you and you alone. Let this be our confession. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, John issued a question, and it was, what are we going to worship? You know, worship is to fall down before something. So are we going to worship the world, or are we going to worship the God that made it? And the way the Lord showed this to me is, do we want a super fancy, you know, five-star meal, or do we want the chef in our house? We can have that which is instant. It lasts, you know, for a short time. It's, it can be good. It can be tasty. Or we can have the chef that's in our house, the one that creates the meals. And, and which one are we going to worship are we going to take the instant, or are we going to take that which is lasting? And, you know, 
in the in the kind of the metaphor that the Lord was using with me, it kind of changed into we're the chefs. So do we want to be trained to make instant meals that are short and sweet, or do are we do we want to be trained in the skills that can make lasting impressions and and be repeated? And you know, the great thing about when you know you're a chef is that you can then share it with others. A chef can make many meals at the same time. So it becomes, there's this shift from the instant to the lasting, but there's also this shift from the individual to the community. You know, like John said, for us to die is to gain Jesus, but for us to live is to help others gain Jesus. And, and if we value him, why don't we want others to have that? Why don't we want them to see that as well? So, Lord, we just thank you this morning. Lord, we just ask you to come and train us, Lord, to shift us from the things that are instant in this world to the things that are lasting in yours. Lord, to shift us from the things that feed our individual selves, Lord, to the things that feed our, our community and our society. And, Lord, we just ask that you work with us when those times come where we just say, Lord, take us now, because it seems so much easier. It seems, it just seems so hopeless at times, Lord, but we know nothing is hopeless when you're involved. Lord, there is nothing that you can't conquer. There is nothing that you haven't already beaten back. And so, Lord, we just say, Lord, give us that faith, that hope to rise. And Lord, to know that we need to shift from ourselves out into the world, Lord. It's not, about, it's not about us avoiding the darkness. It's about us carrying your light into the darkness. And so, Lord, we just ask that, you know, as we sit before you in this moment, Lord, having worshipped you, having noted today all the things that you've done for us, the things that you did on the cross, Lord, that it is on you that we set our eyes. Lord, and as we go forth from this place, Lord, we ask to wake tomorrow morning with our eyes still set upon you. Lord, that our eyes would open to know the mercy that you have already given us as we wake up. Lord, the joy that you want to give us in the day. Lord, it doesn't matter if it's raining or sunny, cold, warm, Monday or Friday. Lord, we know each day is the same before you, and so we just seek to wake in your presence, Lord to go to sleep in your presence and then to wake in it, Lord. Seven days a week, 24-7, Lord, just be with us. And, Lord, we know that doesn't happen in one day. Lord, like any good chef, Lord, it's, it's a process. It's training. It's practice. It takes time. And so, Lord, we just ask that you meet us where we're at, that you give us our personal training plan, Lord, that if it's we need to carve a little bit of time, if it's we need to open up a devotional, Lord, if it's we need to go into your word, Lord, if it's we need to activate into a ministry, Lord, if it's we need to dedicate some time, Lord, whatever it is, Lord, you know what we all need individually. And so, Lord, we just ask that as we ask, you step in, Lord, and you just start to teach us and train us and continue to love on us in all our failures and in our missteps, Lord. And we just praise your name this morning. Amen.
people asked 